The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning. Please uh, turn to Matthew 13, which is page uh, 978 in the church Bibles. Beginning in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he scattered the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the, sun came, when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plant. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred or six, a hundred, sixty or thirty times that was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever ha- has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, or they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes. Hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I truly tell you, many prophets and righteous people Long to see what you see, but do not see it, and to hear what you hear, but do not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone who hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Bless the reading of his word. The, the Spirit of God is so sweet in this place today, um, and I, I want to thank the praise and worship team for reminding us to value God's presence when, we, when we're in his presence, to appreciate it. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but um, his presence is definitely here today. And um, I, I do have some notes, and I, and I do plan to share, but... Um, sometimes it's good to just pause for a moment and, and acknowledge who God is. Um, I, I know that 
this weekend and on tomorrow, um, we'll have an opportunity to celebrate a great man um, who gave much for this country, matter of fact, the world, and, and uh, his service ultimately caused for him to lose his life. And the Bible tells us to give honor to whom honor is due. But we know a risen Savior who so many years ago gave his life so that we might live again. And if we don't do anything else today, and we came and we just gave God the worship that he's due, our coming wouldn't be in vain. And so I just want to take a moment and just give God some glory. Um, just give him some praise for what he's done. It, it, when, when you think about the presence of God, it, it, you can't help but to feel unworthy for the gift that God gave so that I could have eternal life with him and that I could be delivered from my sins. And so, God, we just thank you today, God. We thank you for who you are. God, we didn't come today to ask for not one thing. We came today to just give you appreciation for the God that you are. We thank you that you are a God that desires to dwell with us. You're not a God made of hand, the, ma the hands of man. You're not a God of wood or stone or crafted out of metal. But you live in us and you dwell in us. You, you, you abide in these temples of flesh. And so we thank you today, God. We thank you for your glory. God, we couldn't think of our lives without you. If, if we would take a second, we can remember when we didn't know you. And the day that we came to know you, God, and we bless you, God. So thank you for allowing me to do that. I, I just thank God for, um, he's my savior, he's my king, he's my Lord. Um, and so um, my, my wife is here with us today. She, she snuck in. Um, so my wife and my daughter, they snuck in in the back. Thank you for, for coming today, Marika. Um, my son didn't have any choice. Um, you know, that, that is the role that sons have. Um, you know, daughters can say no. Wives can say no. But sons, they don't, they don't have a choice. <laughs> you, you, got, you got a role. Yeah, yeah Caleb knows that. You, you, don't get, you don't get a chance. So I thank you for, for going ahead and reading the scripture. So I won't, um, um, won't reread the scripture, but I just want to share um, some with you today. Um, Pastor Ellis um, loaned me his keys. Um, I promised that, that I would put the ride back right where it was parked. I would refill it um, and wipe it down clean. So um, um, I, I'm truly honored that he would even allow me to um, minister on his behalf um, I have such great respect for him um, as a, a pastor, a teacher, but more so a, a man and a brother. Um, I, um, had, I think the first time Ellis and I met was maybe four or five years ago, and um, he had a meeting in City Hall, and, um, and if this wasn't the first time, it was probably the most impactful time that we met. And... Um, and I think at that time he was a little bit under the weather. Um, I can't remember what he was dealing with. Um, but right in City Hall, we had an opportunity to pray. And with everything that happens in City Hall, um, 
It might seem strange, but I value those times when right in the seat of government in in the city um, to find another man who's not, who loves his God and not ashamed of his God, that it doesn't matter. You know, sometimes people can turn God on and turn him off. It depends on what venue they're in. And right in a conference room in City Hall, we were just like, this is who we are. We would, we would pray if we were in the sanctuary. We would pray if we were home. You're sick. We're going to pray right now. And, um, and, I, and I, love that, um, I love that characteristic about Pastor Ellis, um, that he's not ashamed of the gospel, um, and he's not ashamed to show love. Um, you know, as, as men sometimes, we, we are hesitant to show love um, as if it is, um, a, a deficit to, to uh, a manly character. But really, how men show love is really proof um, of our manhood. And so um, I, I, thank, I thank God for your pastor. Um, I thank God for my brother. Um, Matthew 13, which was read um, in your hearing earlier, um, signals for us a major transition in Jesus' ministry and style of teaching. Previously, Jesus' teaching was pretty matter-of-the-fact um, and in your face. Um, Jesus is a pretty bold character. He doesn't he, you know, pull any punches. Um, he's going to tell you, you know, as Scripture relates, he's going to tell you what he thinks. Um, in earlier lessons, like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught with plain language and with illustrations that could hardly be considered a parable. There was little ambiguity in the message. Rarely did his audience walk away unclear about what Jesus sought to convey. Most often, they understood exactly what Jesus said and left his presence either full of joy or deeply remorseful. There was rarely any middle ground. But chapter 13 announces for us a new tool in Jesus' arsenal, the parable. Now, not that Jesus had not used parables before, Um, But previously, many did not have the depth of meaning that was now exhibited in Matthew 13. For example, if you were to look at Luke 6 and and, uh, verse 39, and I'm reading the King James, uh, and Luke says, and he spake a parable. So this is a parable, a previous parable of Jesus, and it says, can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall in the ditch? Okay, it's a parable, but really not much there, not, not much hidden. So, so sure, it's called a parable, but as I said, not much insight is required to garner the meaning of this verse. <clears throat> but as we look deeper into this transition that we witness in Matthew's gospel <clears throat> and look deeper at Jesus' use of the parable, excuse me, <clears throat> it appears that he began to tire of the antics of the Jewish leaders and the crowds that shadowed him his very every moment. Let's be honest for a moment. If we were Jesus in a similar situation or position, we probably would have felt the same way. This particular element of the multitude was a consistent presence, constantly drawing on Jesus' time, patience, and anointing, all the while exhibiting an ever-increasing level of spiritual disinterest in his ministry, a malaise or impartiality which they tried to disguise as a simple lack of understanding, but in reality, there was just a blatant rejection of Jesus' ministry. They no more wanted Jesus now than they did at the onset of his ministry. 
And for them, Jesus knew this position was not going to change. He had seen enough of their antics. And while not just outright ignoring them, he was going to, from the perspective of this public servant, he was going to focus on his base. And so when I think about this transition in Jesus' ministry, I think about my wife, Marika. So now you know I'm already in trouble. (laughs) Because as a speaker, you better not bring up your wife. (laughs) Because now she's going, what is he about to say? Um, But I think when I think about this transition, I think about my wife, Marika, and how she tries to express to my children in a gentle and soft-spoken way, thank you, her desire for them to complete their chores. She tries to be so quiet and gentle as she encourages my daughter, Sydney, and my son, Leon, to do what uh, they should do around the house um, without asking. You see, for those who don't know my wife, this is the new and improved Marika. Because the old formula Marika would not be so gentle. She would not be so kind. She might elevate her voice a little bit. The old Marika, and, 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 and let me say this, and maybe, maybe the women in the house will agree, uh, or mothers in the house will agree, that um, there are different levels of chores. Now, if you want to keep your room messy, there's certain levels, but if you want to live trifling, that's your room, you have it. If you want to keep the bathroom that you and your sister use um, semi-clean, we don't like it, but that's your bathroom. But don't mess with mama's kitchen. <laughs> you can keep your mess in your space, but don't mess up mama's kitchen. Because with the old Marika, you might end up with a bag of dirty dishes in your bedroom. <laughs> As a simple, gentle reminder uh, that you neglected to wash the dishes last night. But that's the old Marika. We're talking about the new and improved Marika. And I'm going to get it when I get home. Because the new Marika says, I'm not going to raise my voice. I'm going to talk nice. Um, You say that you respond better to nice mommy. So I'm going to give you nice mommy. But when met with continued disregard for this form of nice mommy ministry, only that ministry only lasts but so long before my wife, in a few words, declares in no uncertain terms, I'm done talking. Now, for those who have ever heard the mommy, I'm done talking, you know that that's trouble. Now, I've, I've heard the wife done talking, the honey done talking, the baby done talking, but the mommy I'm done talking is much, much worse. You don't want to be in a place where mommy all of a sudden decides that no more talking. And chapter 13, for me, amounts to Jesus declaring, I'm done talking. Now, of course, Jesus didn't stop talking or there wouldn't be any of the, you know, nice red portions of the New Testament in your Bible. (laughs) So he did a lot more talking. But what he did was change the way that he talked and discoursed with the crowd. You ignored me when I came speaking grace? Well, let's see how you like it when I talk judgment. While the masses did not realize that a shift had occurred, one group noticed the change immediately, Jesus' disciples. And I love in certain aspects of the Bible when the disciples 
um, you can tell that they're a little bit scared of where Jesus is right now. And they know that somebody has, you know, literally ticked Jesus off. And so I can just imagine the disciples seeing Jesus after this discourse. And, and it's clear that, you know, something has changed. And so you know, the disciples go up to Jesus. And I can imagine them asking, how you doing, Jesus? He's like, I'm doing well. There was a great lesson today. Jesus is like, mm-hmm. Went a little bit off script this morning, Jesus. Um, you threw in a new parable on us that we weren't familiar with. Um, you realize that nobody out there knows what you just said, Jesus. <laughs> now, we understand. We, we got it. But they don't have a clue what you just said. And so the disciples approach Jesus and they say, well, why now? Why are you all of a sudden you speaking to, to them in parables? The disciples recognized immediately that this was something new. They had become familiar with Jesus' teaching and had to take notice that ministry as they knew it had now changed. Jesus never won for being bashful, bashful responded to their question with the following. He said, because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given. These truths of the kingdom of God were not for the general audience, but for those, and at this time Jesus' disciples, whose hearts were committed to Christ and the advancement of his ministry. Jesus went on to say, For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. And this sounds kind of harsh, but this is a principle of the kingdom of God. That the individual who improves what wisdom, grace, and opportunities he has shall have them increased. For the person whom they remain stagnant, it is within God's purview that they should be taken away. The principle is in effect in every area of the believer's life. And while it is often overemphasized in the realm of possessions, it is best exhibited in grace and godly character and in discipleship. And while this declaration seems harsh, the Jews of Jesus' time had many opportunities of learning the truth. But the opportunities that they had were squandered, and it was a just judgment that they should be deprived of them. But while, on the other hand, the disciples of Christ were given great insight that they improved on, and no matter how gradual, and the promise was that it should be greatly increased. So he withdrew from the, the, the Jewish population, but the disciples who had already given wisdom, and they were diligent with it, gave increase. So as a result, Jesus says, therefore, speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not and hearing they hear not. Neither do they understand. In this latter half of his ministry, Jesus uses this form of teaching to bring judgment on the unbelieving by concealing the truth in parables. He knew that their hearts were calloused and that they had no interest in the things of the kingdom. They desired darkness and he gave them exactly what they wanted. John 3, verse 19 says, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. But at the same time, these same parables to the receptive heart, it's amazing how this parable could be a judgment to one, but it could be light 
to someone else. There's someone who has the right receptive heart. To the ones with receptive heart, the same parable was a revealer of the truth. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 says, And ye shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There's no such thing as slowful seeking God or half-seeking God. I mean, you're either all in or you might not be in at all. What this parable and parables in general do for us is explains the value of God's kingdom and the folly of chasing after the things of the world. God's kingdom is what our life should be all about. Yet we, both believer and non-believer, frequently gravitate towards frivolously preoccupying ourselves with life in a much dysfunctional way. Parables to the repentant heart drives us to a place where these lessons from our Lord will make a profound difference. Parables cause us to perform a self-evaluation. They compel us to ask questions. They challenge us to exemplify in our living a genuine answer to our Lord and to the others around us. Is our faith in Christ sincere? Is it authentic? These are the questions that parables cause for us to ask. Are we making a difference? Or are we a fraud, a shyster, pretender? Are we causing more strife than healing? More shame than glory? More resentment than love? Is our family, community, and a city the better because of our presence? Or are we like some floatsome or jetsome, a throwaway from today's culture that just rides upon the current with no purpose, destination in mind? If we allow them to, these parables will help us examine the content of our heart and to identify what our true motivators are. These kingdom parables also help us to see and to internalize and to apply the truth, and that being the truth of God's word. As disciples of Christ, we don't have to search for the truth, being that we already have it, but that doesn't excuse us from the requirement that we learn it, that we keep it, that we study it, that we apply it, and maybe more so than others, other, than those, is that we teach it to others. We are stewards of the truth. We are responsible for the truth that God has entrusted unto us. I believe you studied Nehemiah last week, um, and this was the same requirement of the scribes that were commissioned under Ezra. But the scribes were negligent of their responsibility. They lost their call and love. And in many regards, they learned it, but did not live it. Think about the culture that we live in, where many might be quick to learn or have an academic knowledge of the word of God. But where is the urgency to live it? They hoarded the word. They didn't invest it in others. What good is it if we are fat on the word, but we never fulfill the commission of sharing it with others? We can learn from their error that it is a great privilege to have the truth to study, learn, grow in, and proclaim. But it, has to, but it has been revealed to us, and it is of great value and great price.
the parables in this chapter, and some would say there's seven, others would say there's eight, depending on how you count them, are all focused on an aspect of God's kingdom. They speak, they speak to the method by which the kingdom is established, its corruption, its outward and inward growth, the condition of entrance into it, and its final purification. So what part of the narrative does the parable of the sower focus on? The parable of the sower shows what are the great hindrances of people's profile, or profiting by the word of the gospel, and how for many the word does not fulfill that for which it was sent because of our own undoing, our own lack of discernment, our own lack of introspection. Matthew's account leaves no doubt or confusion concerning the nature of this parable, and prompted by the disciples, uh, Jesus so graciously spells it out in detail. The seed sown is the word of God. Here in some translations, it's called the word of the kingdom. The sower that scatters the seed is our Lord Jesus Christ, either by himself or by his ministers. The ground in which the seed is sown is the hearts of men and women, which are differently qualified and disposed. And as a result, the success of the word is different in each scenario and for each individual. The seed along the wayside or the path represents those who will not even listen. For these individuals, the seed is stolen away by Satan as quickly as it's sown. The seed on the rocky ground represents those who quickly accept the word. You know, those saints that are hot for Jesus. And they accept it quickly with no sobriety, no seriousness. They sprout up fast but wither away just as quickly because they have no depth of root. So when a trial comes... They can't stand. They can't stand the heat of it, and they wither away. The seed sown in the thorny ground remains longer than the other two soils. The seed is allowed to grow and seemingly flourish, only to be ultimately suffocated into fruitlessness by the cares, concerns, and enticements of this life, while the good soil provides the proper environment for growth and produces a crop that yields some 30, 60, and even 100-fold. And so, if I would be completely honest, not as if I haven't been to this point. <laughs> and he's like, well, you weren't? I think that when I was first introduced to this parable, the parable of the sower, I initially held the sower or farmer in disdain. Now, don't, don't turn my mic off. Hear me out first. And those with any familiarity with this passage might think it's strange that I could feel this way because I've already said that it doesn't take a biblical scholar to ascertain that these verses are talking about God or his ambassadors as being the sower or farmer. And Luke's account, he clearly says in Luke 8, verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And Mark does likewise in 4 and 14 where it says the sower soweth the word. So what, what, what problem could I have with the sower? Um, you can't get much clearer than that. The sower is God or his servants, and the seed is the word of God. So I guess it begs to ask, if I'm saying that I have a problem with the sower, am I confessing that there was a period in my life where I really had a problem with God? I guess if pressed, I would say, yeah, me and God had a problem. And even as I matured and gained a better understanding of this passage and other scriptures, 
if I would be truly honest, once again, it was still difficult for me to shed the fact that I had a problem with my heavenly farmer, pun intended, and how he chose to manage these seeds. I mean, come on. He has total control of this bag bag of seeds to distribute them at his discretion. He is the steward of the seeds. And instead of searching out carefully, distributing them in this beautiful, good, fertile soil, here, and please forgive me, Lord, this lazy and undisciplined farmer is out there just wasting all this valuable seed. I had a problem. I mean, instead of sowing all of this priceless seed in, like, good soil, like, let me pretend for a second, this, these are my good soil people. So, like, if I'm the sower, I'm, like, sowing all my, good, my seed in my good soil. The good soil of, no, i got to give you all a name, Fruitville. Okay. <laughs> and instead, I read the passage and seed is just falling everywhere. Like, why? If it was me, I wouldn't sprinkle any seed anywhere else but in Fruitville. (laughs) But God did it differently. See, instead of sowing it there, he sowed it discriminately. So while I'm expecting that he would sow it over here in this good soil, God is over here over, you know, in the wayside, over on the path, the, my, my path people over here, look, look at them, look at them. They, they're just like, why we got to be on the wayside? <laughs> he's growing seed over there. And like, I'm, I'm coming over to the good. It's like, he's wasting all our good seed over here. Can somebody do something about this? I mean, we know no good thing grows in wayside. Look, they're mad. They're like, where's Alice? Ginger, get him on the phone. He just called me a path person. I'll show you a path person. But why would he, I had a problem. Why would he waste the seed? Why would he throw the seed in an area where we know it was not going to sprout and grow? Why would he allow it to fall in an area where it's not going to grow? I mean, you know, my, my good soil people, you are high-functioning, you know, good soil. I mean, you know, we, I looked at the numbers last year, and y'all had a great rate of return last year. I mean, you know, some 30, some 60, and my, 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 my man back there, 100-fold. I mean, you're really, I mean, you're really producing. I mean, we should be putting all our seed, investing all my seed over here, not this barren community over on the wayside. But isn't that how we think in the natural We take our investments, we determine what sections are more worthy than others, and say, well, I'm just going to invest over here. You figure it out. But can you help cultivate us? We could accept the seed if somebody would help break the ground. No, you figure it out. You break your own ground. You figure it out. I'm going to invest my seed over on the good soil people. And we just continue to trample over the path people. The old run-of-the-mill path people. And the thing is, anyone who's 
living in the wayside, they want to get out. Nobody wants to reside there, and, and they're looking for an opportunity to get from wayside to Fruitville. But the thing is, and while that's admirable, that we could change somebody's location from wayside to Fruitville, and we celebrate that type of transformation, we celebrate that type of transaction, we find out quickly that fruitlessness is not about changing your address. It's about changing your heart. I mean, because let's think about it. Who cares if your body is in Fruitville, and we're talking about plants, your stalk is planted in Fruitville. But if I look down into your soil or your soul and follow your root, and it takes me all the way back to wayside, what difference does it make? Because your heart is where your treasures are. You see, if God could get us to analyze the condition of our soil with sincerity and then apply the treatment as prescribed by God deliberately, as the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If we would search ourselves that way, we wouldn't have to leave wayside to get the fruitville. We could see the soil of our wayside transform right before our eyes, or our shallow side, if we say that, or our thorny side, all into good soil of Fruitville. I think that I had a problem with the sower because I made an assumption that many of us make. That assumption being that I'm good soil. (laughs) Matter of fact, I'm topsoil. There's no way that I'm any other of those soils. I'm good soil. Isn't that what we think? Yeah, I'm good soil. Jesus wasn't talking about me. And now I came to the conclusion, and I came to that conclusion without consulting God, the Word, my pastor, or any other mature believer. I took the position that I know that I'm good soil and never considered that I could be one of the other grades of soil. And little did I know that by taking that position, I only proved that I was anything but good soil. See, I thought that I was somewhere on the spectrum of soil comparing my soil to someone else's soil. So you know how we get caught up in that? We never hold it up to God's standard, but we compare it to somebody else's dirt. My dirt's better than your dirt. <laughs> and we're comfortable with that. But if you would please allow me some liberty with the text, I didn't realize that there aren't four types of soil. There are only two types. You're either fruitful or you're barren. That's it. This isn't Baskin Robbins. You don't get 31 flavors of soil. (laughs) You are either good soil or your fruitless soil. You see, outside of the good soil, every other scenario leads to death of the seed. If you're not multiplying, you're slowly dying. Let me say that again. If we're not multiplying, we're slowly dying. 
I'm going to talk about me because no one in here is like this, of course. You know, sometimes I think my soil don't stink. You can laugh at that. <laughs> I think that I've got it all together and I'm pretty good and, and I forget the admonishment of Paul. When First Corinthians, Corinthians, he says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Any of us been in that position where There was a time when you were always fasting, you were always praying, you were always seeking God because you were in the midst of a trial. You get out of that trial, and it's like, oh, I'm good now. I don't fast as much as I used to. I don't read the word. Uh, Ellis, I see you when I see you. Start hitting and missing. You used to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. You used to be the first one when doing outreach. But now you're comfortable. Now you're okay. There was a time when you were standing in Christ. Now you're standing in your own will. And I've been in that place. Where you, uh, I know everything and I don't need to listen. I neglect those things that develop Christian character and I forsake quality time with God. And I keep looking at other people's soil and never acknowledging that mine is getting just a little bit shallow that my soul is getting a little bit dry, kind of like my mouth right now, <laughs> and a little polluted. So I'm going to close with this. And I just want to read this into your hearing. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture, but I don't want to leave you without, I think I've challenged you, but I don't want to leave you without a course of action. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. And, and we'll end with this. And, uh, and I believe we do the benediction afterwards. And, oh, I, I'm sorry. I, somebody was so nice to bring me water. I'm, I'm just... I, I didn't want it to mess up my retainer. So, <laughs> verse 19 says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Verse 21, wherefore lay, aside, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. I just love that word. Doesn't that sound like a funk band, superfluity? <laughs> if I could play an instrument, my band would be called superfluity. I'd be like, no, 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 no. Okay, I'm sorry. And receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Verse 22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Because what are you doing? You know, you know, you know how as, as children we thought we were getting one over on our parents? You're not fooling anybody. You're not fooling daddy. Scripture says you're deceiving your own self. For any, if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Verse 25, and I'll close with this. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed. This woman shall be blessed in his deed, in her deed. Um, I want to read this passage of scripture as we benedict.
been a blessing to, the scripture's been a blessing to me, and I just want it to be a blessing to you. Because I don't know what you are going to face this week. I don't know what you're going to face later today. You know, when we come together as brothers and sisters, um, we've got to acknowledge the fact that that somebody didn't come in this place with the same joy that we might have come with. It might have been, it might have taken everything that they could do to get here this morning. Um, Because we don't know what happened last night. We don't know what kind of call they got in the morning. But there was something inside of them, some calling of God that said, if you could get in the congregation of the saints, if you could get in the household of faith, there's joy there, there's peace there, there's love there. There, There's a balm in Gilead, and it's right in that sanctuary. And so I want to read this, and I, and I pray that it's an encouragement, and I read it to you as a prayer, and this is our benediction. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress, and I'm reading out of Psalm 20. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. And this is beautiful right here. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Lord, give victory to Gallery Church. Lord, give victory to everyone in this house. Answer us when we call. Amen.